Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jared Ingersoll. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. games. In today's episode, we're covering Kinesia Games, Hidden Gems, but Jake's not here. And instead, I'm joined by Kinesia enthusiast Jared Ingersoll, who you might know as Jay Redeye in our Discord, and I am thrilled to have him here. How you doing, Jared? Thank you. Yes, glad to be here. I know when you needed another St. Louis board gamer whose name starts with J, I'm second on the list for sure. <laughs> First on the list in my heart. Jake said to roast, <laughs> to roast him I, about, so J- Jake is on an away mission, aka I think like a Thanksgiving holiday, and left his mic at home, which is not to say that that's why we have Jared here. We have Jared here because he's, I think, one of the most I would say one of the world's foremost experts on Kinesia at this point. I won't let you sort of support that claim, but I'll say anyone who owns over 100 Kinesia games, runs a Kinesia Discord, has, I think, deliberately explored someone's catalog slash ludography, that's what it's called, to the depths that you have. I think that makes you a real expert in this designer's games. And met him in person. And met him in person. A highlight of my life. Was he wearing a bow tie? He was indeed. His trademark. Kind of Rubik's Cube <laughs> rainbow oh bow tie. That's and amazing. I'm happy to report that he is just and charming and lovely in person as everyone would hope. Oh, that's awesome. Well, on today's episode, we're going to cover some games with tiling mechanisms, some games with shared progress, auction games, and more. And I think the exciting thing is, Jared, oftentimes when people talk about Kinesia, you know, talk about sort of with any designer, there's always those games that rise to the top where people sort of talk about like, oh, these are the best games that that, that designer has to offer. Kinesia, that's things like Raw or Modern Art or Tigris and Euphrates or Yellow Yangtze or maybe even My City, if you're asking me. Zuvadis certainly in the hot lately. High Society. There's so many games. And I think that because of that, when you've designed as many games as Kinesia has, there's incredible games that maybe don't even get mentioned in the top 20 games that he that people talk about when they think of or talk about Kinesia, but there's these amazing games that kind of, I don't know, haven't really bubbled to the top. And I I felt it would be appropriate to maybe explore some of those and explore what the interesting decisions are and in those games, and who better than with someone who's played over 100 Kinesia games. I mentioned already you own over 100 Kinesia games, you run a Kinesia Discord, you're a member of the Laughing Table Friends, so you play games with Jake frequently, but... How many Kinesia games do you actually own at this point? The current count is at 127. I think that's just incredible. And most of them are good. Which is pretty amazing. Will you talk to us a little bit about like how you first encountered Kinesia? Sure. So I got into hobby board games around 2013. And the kind of fairly typical path with Dominion and Carcassonne, things along those lines. Mm. And so the first game by Kinesia I played was Battleline, one of his classic two-player head-to-head yeah poker style game and so it was at that point when i was not paying as much attention to designers it was just hey this game is great (laughs) Mm. and it and it is still our most played brackets non-crokinole and brackets board game in my collection so it it really stuck with us uh i first played tigers euphrates in 2015 and that has since become you know my favorite game overall just by him and that was at the time when Fantasy Flight was doing their Euro Classics line. And so I started collecting those. And it was, I'd say, around 2019, 2020 is when I consciously and deliberately started digging into the back catalog and trawling eBay. And I was living in Germany at the time. So I was able to access some of those games a little bit more easily than when I was in the US. So yeah, it just, it's, it snowballs. Once you go down that rab- rabbit hole, there is. There is so many options. I think he's he's well over 700 entries on Board Game Geek wow. right now. So it's it's absurd. And he's been going since I think his first design was in something like 91. So we're on his fourth decade. Would you say it's Tigris and Euphrates that really took you from sort of being, okay, I'm intrigued by this game that people say is really good to sort of saying I'm a Kinesia fan? Or was it before then? I, I don't think Tigris and Euphrates was... About the second. So I think it wasn't that one. It was, I played Texture Freddy's and then Modern Art and High Society and Raw all in fairly quick succession. And that, sure. and, and that is when I was being a little bit more discerning in my hobbyist taste and, 
and just the fact that it's like wait one person did all of these yeah. and they're all so different yet all <laughs> great in different ways that's awesome yeah and then finding some of his old obscure ones and a big part of it was the shout out to nick murray from bitewakes game starting the renner canusia enthusiast discord and so meeting other like-minded individuals and yeah, I let me okay, I want to share my Kinesia background because I don't think I've ever said on the show. The first Kinesia game I think I ever played was Tigers and Euphrates. A friend, I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, and a friend found a copy at Goodwill for $9 or something like that, which is absurd. It was the old, uh, I guess it's Rio Grande, Hansom Glick version. So he sort of pulled out and was like, this is one of the best games according to Board Game Geek. This is back in like 2015 or so. And I was like, great, let's give it a try. Fascinated by it. I thought the the mechanisms, right? Like Kinesia, so every twist perfectly placed. And then quickly thereafter played Lost Cities. So mm-hmm. very similar mirrored experience of sort of, oh, Lost Cities, two-player head-to-head game, the tension back and forth, just, I don't know. His games just stick with you. What do you think about his games, though? So I've probably, I, I haven't counted. I would guess I own more than 10 Kinesia games, and I think I'm a huge, he's probably my favorite designer of all time, but I don't own more than 50. I don't own more <laughs> than 75. I don't own more than 100. What keeps you What keeps you hungry? Like, why, why keep going? I was talking about this with the LTF boys last week, so... I've, I know it's not necessarily the most healthy behavior, but I drive a specific kind of joy from collecting and trying obscure Kinesia games. So yeah. the fact that they're such a wide variety and so interesting, well, it's the depth through simplicity, right? Yeah. His, his longest rule book is maybe six pages, mm-hmm. and yet you can play some of these games over and over and forever, and they're always interesting. So I've been given some grief from my game group because they don't all enjoy trying like the weird <laughs> obscure ones as much as I do. We've had some pretty disastrous first impressions with things like Cats and Jammer Blues, <laughs> which did not go over well. But I, yes, I, I have a stack of ones yet to play that I'm going to have to try and go through. And uh, when I was talking to them, I said, maybe I should focus on like the really good ones <laughs> instead. So you could see what I see a little bit more instead of I keep trying these <laughs> weird edge case ones on them that maybe don't necessarily go over as well if you're not as silly a person as I am. I think too, for me, Jared, there's always a sense of wonder with Kinesia games where you can read the rule book and sort of internalize it, but not fully know the game that will emerge on the table mm-hmm. as much as maybe some other designers. Like some other designers, I don't know, you sit down and you read the Lost Ruins of Arnak rule, rule book or whatever, you sort of know the experience you're going to get out of it. And I think to me, one thing I love about Kinesia is there's always a sense of wonder. Even we're going to talk about a game in a minute because we're talking about hidden gems of Kinesia, which some of these I think a lot of our listeners will never have heard of. Some of them might be sort of known hidden gems, which I think is exciting. But one of them, you even taught me the game. You told me about what we would experience and still the social experience of what came out of it elicited a sense of wonder in me of sort of why are there not more games like this? Why, why are, how does this one designer create so many different social experiences? Even though I I don't know that he would ever characterize his games as being such to me, his games are like very social in a way that modern euros aren't often always. I think he keeps in mind that the most important part of a board game experience is the players at the table. Mm. By focusing on and not always interaction, but just attention and yeah. focus on those around you and what they bring into it. So, yes, yeah, so what you're saying, you can internalize the rule set, but like the choices you make and the strategies you employ can be so completely different. Zuvatis is a good example. Within the pretty loose framework there's so much opportunity for players to make choices and interact with one another in unforeseen ways and the so the framework of the game gives them the opportunity to be creative and exciting and make really fascinating choices yeah you in some ways it's just like you have so much agency in his games he's so trusting of the player to make to make the experience what they want of it or even lose early on in the way that people talk about splatter games of being able to make horrible blunders from the start like Kinesia lets you do that too sometimes mm-hmm. you often won't because you can make smart decisions like as a player you can see that it's the wrong decision more clearly than maybe in some of those games i don't know i think we should get into it let's talk about five hidden gems we'll kind of continue to tease out and explore this but 
these, we're going to talk about five hidden gems from Jared's collection. Of these 127 Kinesia games he's tracked down, these are the ones that have sort of bubbled to the top for Jared beyond sort of the, the, well-known, the well-known hits that I think have been in print forever. A lot of these, maybe all of these are out of print at this point. Yeah, all five games are currently out of print, which Tragedy. that's exciting in a way. But well, a lot of potential maybe. Maybe yes. we'll see these games again someday. Yeah, I'm going to do my best to boost the signal here and put it out in the universe for any publishers listening. Okay, so should we start with this 2005 game? Let's do it. I'll let you take it away then. All right, so the first one is probably my favorite hidden gem, and that is 2005's Tower of Babel. So this is an area majority game where you are trying to build the eight wonders of the world, the eighth being the apocryphal <laughs> Tower of Babel. So the thing that makes this different is each turn, players are selecting which wonder they want to work on building. And there are different building materials required to do so. And there'll be four little tokens that say how many of those materials is needed, right? So you decide what you want to build and which building material you want to focus on, but you might not actually have enough yourself in order to build it. So you then open it up to the rest of the table, and then they can contribute materials of their own to help you build this. So if that is successful, you will get the token. And for everyone who contributed, they will get to put one of their markers in the area corresponding to area majority, right? So the more houses you have, the more control you have over there. But one of the wrinkles is if someone offers you the correct building material and you reject them because maybe then they would end up with more influence in that region than you and you don't want that to happen, you can send them aside and then they will get points for being rejected. So they still get a benefit from that. So you are incentivized to help one another out and maybe even help them out more than they would want because you then get to keep your cards but still, but still get points for making the offer. And in a way, it kind of ends up being this game of chicken sometimes where you sort of say, how much can I offer without getting the person to take my offer, right? Because if you offer three resources, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I offer three resources and you don't take them, I get three points. So yes. it's sort of, I, I want to offer, but sometimes I don't want you to actually accept because I don't yes. care about the error majority. Yeah. The So the different components of this is the tokens that the active player, if they successfully build, gets to keep, that goes into end game set collection to where the more you have of a certain type, the more points they're worth versus the building materials goes through the points. So there's yet another wrinkle in this to where there's something called the trader card, trader with a D, where you get to say, hey, you can have all of the pieces, you can have all of the influence that I would have provided, but I get that token. <laughs> and it's an all or nothing proposition to where if you accept in order to do it, you have to then make that trade. And it really puts you in difficult positions because it, it depends on your priorities at the time. Because yet the other subtlety that makes this game really shine, in my opinion, is the value of each of these areas is determined by the players. So the first mm. one to score will be worth the fewest points, and then each subsequent one is worth more and more and more until the, the end. So not only do you want to have influence in the board and control these places to get the most points, you want to make sure that it is scored at the appropriate time. So it's a really delicate balancing act that offers a lot of player agency. I love that mechanism. I think that's my favorite mechanism in this game that has some really cool mechanisms. Like the the, the mechanism around offering cards and then you get points if you uh, don't get accepted to build, I think is really fun and, and neat. It keeps everyone engaged the whole game. But for me, when we play this, the thing that took it to the next level was that whole scoring system where no none of the areas that you're trying to score have any intrinsic points. It's just when they're scored because it means you're kind of trying to you're like always trying to back the truck up into the right path the whole mm-hmm. way where you, you want to start with things maybe you don't care as much about, hoping to chart a path into what you do want by the end. It just It's kind of an impossible puzzle, which yes. he's so good at. Yeah. Because if you wait too long, then <laughs> maybe it won't score at all right. because it'll end game could be triggered in different ways. So it's, it is tough. And then as well, cards, right? On your turn, instead of trying attempting to build something, you could just pass and get yep. additional cards, which then you will need for other times. And the neat thing about this too, right, Jared, is that if you pass, you get a bunch more cards, but everyone else gets a couple, gets one card. Correct. So it's sort of like everyone at the table loves you. 
if you yes. pass on your turn because you get everyone a little gift, uh, which is fun. This game I felt like socially was just really engaging and interesting. We played maybe five players. I think does this play two to five. I think it plays two to five. Three to five, but yes. Three to five. Okay. And uh, I just felt I hadn't played a five player game where everyone was as engaged the sort of whole game as Tower of Babel in a long time. It was really fun. Yes, I, I fully agree. This is one of my favorites. I think this one is ripe to be brought back and get a makeover. They could make the box a lot smaller and more yeah. attractive. <laughs> and it would just be one of those classic Euro games, German style, lots of interactions. I know one of the co- points of controversy is there are some action cards in there that the publishers included that purists say do not use them <laughs> at mm. all. And I don't think we did when we played, right? Correct. I would never. Yeah. Okay, okay. Because we're purists. Yes. That's right. And then yeah. uh, they re-implemented it in some ways on a different one called Planet Rush, which did not go over as well. I think, so this is like a 30 to 60 minute game, more or less. And I totally agree. I think a small, colorful box. This could come in the box like this has a King Domino and yes. be just a wonderful game. Yeah. yeah, just chunky little wooden pieces and then slightly, and you could really go elaborate with the wonders of the world and make them look in their glory instead of the kind of beige and gray <laughs> versions that in this version. So it's, it's if you can find a copy for cheap on eBay, I definitely think it's well worth seeking out. And the more noise we can make, hopefully someone will bring it back. Totally. And so just for closing, the two sort of unique things decision-wise or that are cool as the tension of this game is some, you always want to sort of, sometimes you're playing chicken with the person who's making these deals because you want to offer a lot of cards but not have them be accepted. Sometimes they do and you kind of get got. And then also that like escalating scoring that's so cool. So that's t- 2005's Tower of Babel. Yes. All right. Next up is one of his games from the 90s about building kingdoms along a river. But no, you piqued my interest. It is actually his other other game about rivers. This is 1999's Rhinelander. This is another game where you can see the DNA with a choir, right? Mm. So he did Tigers and Euphrates, Stevenson's Rocket, and then Rhinelander, which all have a lot of the placing tiles and then merging as the important components. So Rhinelander is. It has a really funky board with a river winding through it, and you are the spaces are on either side and then on the river themselves. And this one, it's a shared deck of cards where there is one through, I believe, 55. And then on your turn, you can play a card in order to play a piece on that space. But the number 55 could be in three different areas, if that makes sense. You'll have to kind of look at a picture of this board to understand what I'm talking about. So with this one, uh, there's... You can see a lot of similarities with Tigers and Euphrates. Instead of catastrophes, this one has something called fortifications, where it just blocks a space so to keep people away from you. And what you're trying to do on this one is build up your dukedoms to have enough pieces on a board to make to place a duke piece down there. And then you're also absorbing things like I believe I love that you're going to the real one. I I am prepared. So All right, sorry. So there are castles which gave you extra pieces in order to make yourself stronger there are cities which are just worth flat points and there are churches which give you a separate majority to have control over bishops and the archbishop right so you're playing these cards and you're putting them out in along the river and if you ever connect two of them it's just a straight up whoever has more pieces Mm. takes over the other one so your pieces remain there but your duke will then be removed and then the whole thing is one single dukedom that it belongs to whoever has the majority. But that could be a good thing because when your duke is removed, you actually score points at that time, Hmm. but then not as many points as at the end of the game, dukes you have left remaining. There's a neat tempo as it goes back and forth. And the part that I wanted to highlight about this one is reinforcements. So you have the option to play any card to then just extend your dukedom a little bit further right but as long as that doesn't start a conflict right so you can just branch out away from other people to make yourself stronger and robust but that won't actually score you points so Hmm. and that number might have been useful at a different time because playing a number is the only time you can play directly next to somebody so there is a significant amount of hand management in the game to where it's like, all right, so I have these numbers that have the potential for me to start making inroads over on this portion of the board, but maybe I need to sacrifice one of them to reinforce over here because I see Tyler off to the side, I and my 
I am this dukedom with all these churches in here. It's such a unique board, Jared, too, the fact that the river just runs all the way through, and then there's just the numbers denoted throughout the river all the way, one to 54 or whatever. There's a couple forks in the road, Mm -hmm. but all the cards, there's one card, right? One through 54. There's one card for each of the spaces that are there. It's really, like you said, it's so hard to describe this game, but it plays, it's a little quicker than Tigris. Is that right? This is like a 45 minute or so game. Correct. So this one, I know it's not as popular with others, but for me, I think it fills a really interesting niche in that it plays up to five and much quicker. So if if you have a group that loves Tigris and Euphrates, but then the fifth person showed up and maybe you're on a time crunch. I think Rhinelander is still a, a really good game to get into, and it is quite different. The The deck of cards, the other point, so there's that many numbers, but there's also a Joker randomly seated in there, and mm. that is what triggers shuffling all of them. So okay. that's when the numbers can come out multiple times. And uh. the point of getting the Archbishop by controlling the most churches is he lets you convert. So then if you are able to play the exact number, then you get to replace somebody's piece with your own, which will can be a very dramatic <laughs> change. And so definitely incentivizes you to go after those churches. Okay, another question. Sometimes people who don't, who bounce off Tigris, not you and I, sort of say, oh, it's so frustrating that my decisions are limited by the random tiles in my hand. Do you feel like if you were one of those people, might you enjoy Rhinelander more? Or does it have a lot of that sort of randomness in terms of your options available to you because of the cards that are there? Or does the hand management let you sort of work into options a little bit more, plan forward a little bit more? It's a good question. I'd say the they might appreciate the reinforcement aspect, mm. right? Because if, if all else fails, you can play any card to just make your little dukedom bigger and maybe sneak your way towards some of the churches thrown away. But Interesting. it's the risk of someone else being able to have just the right number at the right time and hold on to it. So it is, I, I understand a lot of the criticisms of this game, but for me, I, th- I think it works really well and it's, it's worth trying for those who it sounds interesting. The cover is also gorgeous yes. in a way. It, it's very much of a different era. So it has this like beautiful like knight on a horse with this giant flag, like banner type mm-hmm. flag, just like obscenely large. This would never, no one's ever held a flag, flag this large in their entire life. Yeah. And the, the scripts, the sort of font of Rhinelander is this like beautiful sort of old timey font. I don't know. It's a charming box. To me, it evokes a very different era. It's one I'm really interested in. When we were at Geekway of the West, you played this with a group of five and I was playing something else. I think Kansa Teutonica. And I just kept looking over being like, I wish I was playing Rhinelander instead. Yeah. But yeah, so that's Rhinelander. It could do a few tweaks for modern audiences. And while the the cover is great, the rest of the game (laughs) leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. So, and it would be interesting to market, but yes, for the people who like El Grande and Hansu Teutonica, I think this one could sit right beside it as a classic five-player, heavily interactive Euro game. And pretty amazing that it plays in around 45 minutes at mm-hmm. five. That's speedy. Okay, so that's 1999's Rhinelander. Okay, so wow, 99. What a year for him, because that's the year Tigers also came out, right? Tigers was a little earlier, and I think that's part of the other reason for oh, the reception 97. of this one is... Yeah. This was kind of his next big game after mm, Tigers in Your Face, okay. and people were expecting a lot more, and so he kind of zigged on him, yep. and maybe maybe it was an expectation manage, but I, I can't speak to hobbyists in the 90s. Sure, sure, sure. Interesting. Okay, well then let's jump from the 90s, let's go, you know, all the way up to the 2010s with this next one. This is one, yes. you've talked to me about this game a lot, and I'm really interested in this one. So this is yes. Orongo from 2014. Correct. Orongo. So shout out to my hashtag Orongo freaks on the Discord server. They know who they are. Uh, so I trying to be objective, I think this might be the best of these games and most yeah. ripe for a, a new, a second edition, I think would be amazing. So Orongo is a tiling auction game and it is also a race. So you are erecting the... Like Moai. Uh, Moai statues yeah. on Easter Island. And you are doing that by auctioning off positions on the board. So there are six different resource tiles that will be drawn randomly. And then players are bidding in order to place their markers on those tiles on the board. And what you are trying to do is connect a, a specific group of tiles. So some of them are pairs and some of them are singular 
and then create a path to the the beach, the outer edges, where then you can build one of your statues. What's important about this one is this is a closed economy auction. So depending on the player count, there's the currency in this game is shells. And there is a specific number of shells in the game, and that's all that there's going to be. And so when you place your bids, the bids go into the central pool. And then one of the crucial decisions without this game is when you are bidding, whoever bids the most gets to place three tokens. Whoever bids the second most gets to place one. But if you pass and bid zero, you then get to collect all of the previously spent money that mm. other people did. So that is how you you don't get to place any tiles that round, but you do get all your income to go through. So the timing of that is really important because if two people do that at the same time, then they have to share them, right? And so that's not ideal because you're greedy and you want all of the shells in order to do it. And the shells are also used to mark things on the board for the completed um, Maori. When you have those pairs of tiles, you need to mark them with shells from your supply. So there will be less as the game goes on. Making the auctions even tighter as the game goes on. Yeah, because there's fewer shells. Interesting. So this one plays two to four, and you've said it plays well at all player counts. Does that mean this is a tile game, laying game, auction game? You like it too? Yes. It it actually works really well. Okay, interesting. I think the closed economy and the fact that you have to kind of refresh your money and means it still really works. And since this is a game about trying to be as efficient and make the shortest and most direct paths between these things, like the difference between them getting to place three and me getting to place one, right? But then if if I can make them overbid for that, it does work really well at all player counts. And I, I definitely recommend it. So trying it out there. Obviously, Kanitia, well known for his tiling games, right? Like games like Tyrus Euphrates or Babylonia or Blue Lagoon, all fall into that category. And then also really well known for his auction games, so like games like Modern Art or Raw or Medici. This blends sort of his two two biggest genres that he's really well known for. Would you say that the most interesting decisions? It sounds like they lay in the auction. Like yes. the, the, your auction decisions are probably more interesting than your tiling. There's actually kind of two separate tiling things. So it's the ones that you draw from the board, the bag that you then seed on the board. Okay. And then you kind of place... like Blue Lagoon when you place out the different the different yes. resources you can grab. Okay. Yes, kind of. And so they're they're limited, right? Like each each of the ones that you draw has a number, so that one goes on this space. Okay. Only there. And then you have your markers where then you choose which of those ones that came out that you want to plan to make your paths. Interesting. Yes. So the, so you're, you're, you're limited. It's like your options at the beginning, you start with only six different options, right? So you can only go there. So you just need to kind of look at what ones are coming out and where your potential is going to be because you need those certain pairs or singulars. And then also you need an edge space in order to do it and be able to do a path that hasn't been occupied. So the best case scenario is to get just a straight shot using only like three tokens, right? Sure. Like that would be the fastest as possible. That's not always likely. So being able to evaluate the board and say, you know what? Like any of these would be okay for me. None of them are great. So I think this is the time where I can just sit back and just take the leftovers and conserve my money because if one of these comes out, that's one that I really want and I'm going to have to go for it. Looking at the board too, Jared, so I've never played this game, but it's it's a pretty tight board. It's a, mm-hmm. There's not a ton of spaces. Something I mentioned Blue Lagoon a minute ago, that's another hex-based tiling game from Kinesia where I feel you can really spread out in that game. You're not, you could, if you play with four people, you might never sort of butt heads with someone else if you're focused on different things. Whereas this game, it feels like Given the size of the board, the shape of the board, it almost reminds me of Samurai's board shape, honestly. Sort of Island of Japanish. This is actually, though, like maybe a little wider, but it seems like you'd always almost be in each other's business almost immediately because there's really these sort of three edge areas and then everything would push towards the middle. Does that, is that how it plays out that you're kind of always fighting with each other? Or not, not so necessarily. Much? Well, okay. you are always in each other's business but it's because only a few of them come out so there'll be six at the beginning and then you draw three or it changes based on player count yeah for so with more people there's more out there so you have limited options yeah since you need specific pairs of things i'll say like okay so if brendan has this bird person already locked down that means he's really going to want to complete the set with this bird next to it Right. Right. If that one comes out, I could try and take that and deprive you of it and then try and set myself up for a future one. 
or I can kind of cut my losses. Let me have it because I'm more focusing on this other area. But it's the way the tempo comes out, and then there are finite number of outside spaces, and you can you can do a lot of blocking in this game because maybe they have the pairs that they need, but if you can cut them off from getting there, that means they would have to go all the way around, which would, again, not, not be efficient. And this is another, I mean, it's Kinesia, so almost all these games play in under 60 minutes, but this mm-hmm. is another quickish one, right? Like oh, yeah. 40 or so? If that. If that. Yeah, and with, with two players, you can knock it out really quickly. One of my favorite things about this one is that fact that it's a race. You know, e- despite games that I love, like Tiger's Phrase, like Raw, my least favorite part of that is just, all right, counting up all my points, I get five for this, five for this. And so that, the I, the drama of seeing that, oh my God, they're one, <laughs> one statue away. What yeah. am I going to do? And then just, and when it's over, it's it's over and they win. So that, that brings a lot of flair and drama and tension to the proceedings. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, because Kenitia loves his sort of hidden position, even in modern art, right? Like mm-hmm. I have all my tiles behind the board at the end of the game, let's just count up all the money and then all reveal it at the same time. So it's interesting that Arango has the sort of tension on the board of, oh, is Jared going to get there before I do? Mm-hmm. Can he win this auction? That's really yeah. cool. And there's there's plenty of room for like comebacks. Like you can because you can place build multiple statues in a turn if you can pull it off, right? Like if you had set yourself up towards like, all right, if I can just place these three tokens, like suddenly I'll be able to erect three different statues and jump into the lead out of nowhere. So it's you you desperately care about the other players the whole time. That's awesome. So you have the swinginess of maybe a game. Like something I love about Tigris and Euphrates is that because of wars, there can be a lot of exciting swings in that game. Whereas I still love games like Babylonia, but oftentimes you can see the direction that a game of Babylonia is going turns before. Would you say Arango ends up being almost a blend of those sort of two feels? Not, not necessarily. So there okay. there can be no runaway leader in Arango, right? Because if they're winning all the auctions, it means they don't have any money. Right, right, yeah. And if you are at least contributing something to each one, that means you can at least play one every time, right? So you're still sure. doing things, just not as much, but then you have a lot of money. And if you can time it right to where if you like if you can get in their head and catch when they're going to pass and you can do it too, and so then they only get like half as much as they're expecting, yeah. then they can peak early and then you can quickly rest it away from it. So there's yeah, you it's it's really fascinating. So this is also by Ravensburger. I mm-hmm. just want to mention that because we, I might mention a Ravensburger Kanitia out of print game a little bit later. I really want to play this one. So that's a Rongo yes. 2014 game. Which yeah, this is, one's top of the list when we get together again next time. Totally. Okay. So this is an interesting period of his design catalog too. This is kind of, there's not a lot of games from 2014, this era yep. that people still talk about, right? Yes. This is kind of the, when he was not as well regarded. Like during this, my understanding during this time is when he felt like he was kind of past his prime. He was focusing more on family games and children games, and he hadn't had a big hobbyist hit until Quest for Eldorado was mm. considered the the renaissance of when he started coming back into consciousness. But that is a misnomer, in my opinion, <laughs> because he was still doing he was doing great things throughout. It's just some of them maybe didn't get the attention. I'll say Arongo. The production is not great the it's rough the, yeah the tiles and the the board state it's it is hard to parse <laughs> like it's what I really saying, beige yeah and it's and it's hard to see which tiles are actually on there right because mm. it's just pictures so you you take the top you draw the tile and then you put it on a picture of that tile but that means all the pictures are already out there and so you're like wait i didn't even notice that, that one was there right so it's a little harder to see and then it's just the tile that's slightly raised above the picture that's yes. already printed there. Yeah. And then the shells. So it's actual shells, little plastic conch shells or whatever. Yeah, cowrie yeah. shells or whatever they're called. But and like I said, you're supposed to mark them on the pieces, but then they don't sit still and they're really easy uh-huh. to kind of like roll off and it's fiddly. Sure, yeah. because they're shell yeah. shaped. They're like round. Yep. Yeah. So it's not so I can see what they're going for, but yeah, this is I uh when I was talking to some people about this and some people in the industry i think this one is ripe for a second edition Mm. where just a few tweaks in the production would take the world by storm pretty cool to have an auction ish game that works well at two players too that's indeed neat okay cool so that's 2014's arongo 
All right. Okay, what's next? What's next? Next up is a game that has been previously discussed on the podcast. And so I just want to get a little bit deeper into 2005's Beowulf the Legend. Right. So this is another auction game and hand management. But in this one, you represent warriors in Beowulf's you know, clan or crew. And you're going through the story with him. And each of these events in his life is a episode where you are doing an auction and you are bidding on things like points like cards like money and special cards and things like that as you go through leading to the final confrontation with the dragon and his death so this has the auction in this one is one of those kind of game of game of chicken where you can keep raising and it Mm. goes round and round and round and for these there's the different symbols do you get your cards back if you auction and don't win it Yes, only the winner of the auction has to spend their cards for some of them. But there's also different types of auctions. There's once around, and there can be some uh, simultaneous play blind bids. This is Jake chiming in from the edit without a mic, and I have to because that's not correct. In this game, once you make a bid, all those cards are then forfeited in either of the types of major episodes, whether that's clockwise play, where play is proceeding around the table with people one-upping each other, or in this case, matching each other, or in the simultaneous play where people reveal matching symbols. And then there is a pie chart of outcomes. Whoever stays in the longest gets the first choice of outcome, uh, or whoever bid the most, and then it goes down the line up until uh, the the last person gets usually a negative outcome for the bid. So this can be really frustrating if you spend a lot of resources and so does everybody else or somebody's really successful with the risk uh, element of the game. And now you're stuck taking a bad outcome and you've spent a whole hand worth of cards. And so the, the cards have different symbols on them. And this one of the crucial aspects on this one is you don't have to exceed you just have to meet the current bid of symbols. And it goes around. And the crucial part that sits one this way, if you are desperate and you really want to stay in and you want to manage your cards, you can take a risk. And taking a risk is drawing two cards from the top of the deck. And if any of them have matching symbols, you get to keep them and add them to your bid. But if nothing matches, then you bust and you take a wound, a scratch, which can lead up to negative points and bad things throughout the game. So you always have that option to go through and take the risk. So it's almost like building poker hands, but also you can optionally play blackjack and hit the top of the deck if you <laughs> yeah. want to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it leads to some really interesting developments because cards are hard to come by in the game. So you don't necessarily want to get into that kind of sunk cost of like mutually assured destruction where two of you are going back and forth until you like way over bid. So it the crucial point is knowing when to cut your losses and when to actually take the risk and when to push forward and see what other people really care about. Because and some of some of them uh, you're bidding for the best choices, but how it works is the first person to go out, they have the worst choice, right? And some mm. of them are just straight up negative, right? So they can be like this person will get 5 points, this person will get a card and this person will take a wound, right? So obviously you're going to take the points if you can get it. That's super interesting. And But it, all the sort of auctions are variable in terms of what they would put out there or they're based on the space that you're you're on in Beowulf's journey. Yes, each, each episode will tell you which symbols they're looking for and that's what you're bidding on. And then there are some where it's gold and you're spending gold in, this, in the same type of thing. Gotcha. This is another one that was also... So this is a Fantasy Flight Games game yeah. from 2005, right? That is Yes. Right. Yeah. So I find its art really charming, but very, very much of a different period. This is also the funky one that has this weird L-shaped L. board. Yes. Yeah. That it, I've never seen in another game. So yeah, it, yeah, it so seems art, like a really unique game overall. Yes. The art is by John Howe, which is well known for his fantasy work. He's... He has the uh, he's done a lot of Lord of the Rings works and kind of the classic uh, watercolor fantasy work. So people who Lord know, yes, know John Howe's work. And I'm told by 
some of my <laughs> English major friends that it actually does a really good job of conveying the themes of the story, right? And going through, well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that as trust. I'm not as familiar with epic poems of <laughs> medieval totally. times. But yeah, it is, it is really interesting. And unlike anything else that I've played, I know it can be divisive. Like we, we had kind of mixed feelings when I introduced it to the group here. And I would like to put it in front of them again to see because the the way the risks pay off, it can, like sometimes you do just get lucky. Like they took the risk and it worked and you took a risk and it did not work. And what what do you make of that? But that it's, it leads to a fairly unique experience and it, one that is tied to the theme. Like I don't think they could bring this one back as anything other than Beowulf. Beowulf. And I don't yeah. see how they could improve the art with someone better than John Howe. Sure. Some of the, like maybe some of the component and production choices, sure, but this is an obscure one. But fortunately, this one is a little less unique in that it shares quite a lot of DNA with Taj Mahal, which is one of his more prominent uses. It has the same type of push push your luck, uh, games of chicken type auction, only there's no element of risk taking. That one, uh, you get your hand of cards in, in a slightly different way. So still hand management, but works slightly different. And that one adds more of a uh, network and route building in there as yeah. well. So I also really love Taj Mahal. I'd say I'd be hard pressed to, to say which one I prefer overall. I think maybe Beowulf because I I really like the risk. I think it adds a lot of excitement to the yeah. game. But Taj Mahal is slightly more attainable and also well worth checking out. Taj Mahal is really neat. It can feel a little bit plotting when you end up low on cards in your hand. Mm-hmm. So I could see how the risk mechanism in Beowulf would help keep you engaged, even if you didn't necessarily have something, a good hand to sort of be playing from if you've ended up in a bad spot. So that's that's really interesting. And thanks for teaching me about John Howe. I've obviously, yes. I've seen his art, you know, War of the Ring or Lord of the Rings Confrontation. Mm-hmm. I never knew that, I'd never put it together that, oh yeah, that's all probably the same person and that yes. he was doing all this cool fantasy flight stuff. So that's really interesting. And Ethnos too, another yes. game that's John yeah. Howe art. And people, I remember some of the comments people were talking about Ethnos, how it looked kind of generic fantasy. It's like, well, that's because he set the standard for, right, for fantasy. <laughs> like this is the under, like he's, like he mastered the, the, the genre. And yeah, when you're so successful, your own art is steep generic. Yeah, that's yes. pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Okay, so that's 2005's Beowulf the Legend. And then we're going to jump to 2008 with Municipium. Did I say Municipium. that right? Municipium, yes. Yes. Okay, good. So this one is an area influence game as well. Not it's, with a beautiful cover. Uh, no. <laughs> this cover is rough. Yes. Yes. I, I like. I appreciate what they were trying to go for with the mosaic of the the Roman style mosaic, but yeah, that that dead eyed stare, and giant forehead is off putting. In Municipium, you are uh, kind of Roman families trying to exert your influence in this municipality, and you do that by controlling these different spaces, which all have different abilities. It's kind of like if the action cards in El Grande were specifically corresponded to the provinces. Does that make sense? Mm, yep, totally. So on your turn, you play a card, which will trigger kind of an event, which will add new things to the board and shuffle things around and maybe trigger a scoring. And then uh, the buildings will execute, and it's whoever has the majority in each of the sites will get to execute that power. And then they all trigger in order, which is really important because the first one that triggers is the one that does turn order tiebreakers, and which will then influence all the rest of them going forward so it's really important to time a a scoring round when you have as many majorities as you can swing and then at the right time so they can kind of trigger combo and trigger and work together so because this is another one where it is a it is a race so you are working on collecting sets of these citizens in different colors and then when you get a full set uh, you get to cash them in for a coin and then it's race to five coins, and mm. then they win immediately. So there's a there's a lot of different factors in there to where there's a prefect that walks around the outside, and he will. And if you win while there, you get a, a kind of a wild piece, which will mm. help make it easier. And some of the buildings will let you promote your people, and you actually get to put a little hat on your meeple that now they're worth two influence. But it's also kind of crucial to where when that happens, 
they're pushed out of here to the back of the board and so then that will execute last so then you need to do that to them but then also move them around to the outside and you're literally moving them from space to space their adjacencies matter in this game yes as you're shuffling your people around interesting yes you get to i think one or two moves and then you can play a card it's this board jared too is just so for an area it's really an area majority game but it's so simple and abstracted in a way because Uh there's only one two three four five six maybe seven spaces many of which aren't connected it's almost a big circle with one space in the middle that connects them yes so it, it it's really really you know if el grande feels like a map because it is a map of spain all of a sudden we're like hyper abstracted to like this is an oval with some spaces around it in a kind of an intriguing way mm-hmm. uh, actually it's, yes yeah. you get to move one of your family members two spaces or two family members one space each so Interesting. yeah so the board it's it's small but they can be th- three spots away from each other which means it'll take some a while to get over there and you said that you want to be cognizant of sort of when scoring is triggered in a given space because there's a power associated with it and the timing of it. What is the condition that scores a space or that makes scoring happen there? Is it a certain number of people being there? So there are cards, right? Okay. To where the power cards will trigger all houses or... All right, so circling back a little bit. So there is a common pool of cards which will trigger prefix visits, citizen visits, and the power cards. And some one of them is all powers will execute, and then another one is everybody gets to choose one to execute. But then everyone has three cards of their own, which do pretty similar things, but those are one-time use So for the whole game. So you have a card that says all of your powers will activate. So if you're looking at the board and you're like, wow, I control four out of seven of these right now. Now is the time to strike and use all of my powers. And that could be, you know, turn two or three, right? <laughs> because initial setup is is part of it <laughs> where you get to see, wow. see things around. But then once you do it, like again, one time use and then it's gone. And you need to wait for the other power cards to trigger when we go through. So what do you feel like in terms of what do you feel like is the most interesting decision there? The timing around when to use your personal cards. Yeah. Right? Because you want to maximize the benefit to you while minimizing the benefit yes. to everyone else. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Municipium, two to four players, 60 minutes? If that, I'd say you could probably do 45, 30 to 45 and times. Would you play this over El Grande? If I had uh, three, three players, I would pick this. Interesting. Four, a toss up, and then. Five yeah. El Grande. And then five yeah. El Grande every time. But it's it's a lot faster. It's a lot easier to parse. And then, as I said earlier, the, the drama of the the race is, yeah, <laughs> is a lot to say. And there's plenty of room for really tricky things. And so it doesn't have the tempo of the power cards and managing your supply of caballeros. But yeah, just having your people on there and just really small changes yeah. will have those ripple effects right because me moving one of my people over here means i have the majority there so if all powers triggers that means that will let me do this over here and have such a big borsade so like the the first thing to trigger is the temple which is turn order and tiebreakers like i said one of the buildings is tavern which lets you move other people's to the tavern Interesting. so you can pull people out of there and then so and if that goes afterwards, uh, there's the ones that let you add more citizens to the board. Like I said, the oh, in the rulebook calls it the wreath of distinction on your family member. So if they're now have their distinguished hat, and there's things that let you turn in a set for one fewer than before. Huh. So it makes it easier to get the coin and and so on. But yeah, but then there's only there's only seven, right? So it's really easy to internalize and know what they all do. Sure. Again, comparing it to El Grande, right, where each time we reveal the new cards, like if you're not familiar with the whole deck, you're like, okay, got to read it. All right. Oh, what does this Intrigue one do? Yep. It's, right. So there's only the few things. There's five different kinds of cards. And so it all goes, plays 
really quickly. That's awesome. So that's 2008's Municipium, a game with actually the art's pretty. The board itself is kind of charming. The little pieces yeah. with the hats, they're they're nice. I like them. They're cute. It could be like a little bit higher quality, but I don't mind the art. And again, I'm I'm told by people who are familiar <laughs> with the theme that it is conveyed reiner kizia does a lot of research <laughs> into his games and he really does yeah. go setting and theme first but he when you boil it down to the essences like sometimes some things are going to be lost so yeah if you can get over the the cover i mean i think you can get copies of this are available for pretty cheap i think i got mine off of ebay for something like 15 dollars. and wow yeah worth every penny totally that's awesome this is one i'd love to try i've heard people even like it at two which is pretty cool El Grande is like not a game I would ever play it to, mm-hmm. but I think he just does zero sum games pretty pretty well, maybe even better than others. But yeah, so that's Municipium, and I wanted to throw a bonus game in if I can. This is not one of Jared's top five hidden gems, but it's one that I've played that I kind of like, and I think it's novel. This is one of those rare games, Jared, that it I played it once, but it's just stuck maybe twice, but it's really stuck with me. I keep thinking about it mostly because I think. It has those sort of like novel twists that are maybe more interesting than they are fun, but I I enjoyed my plays of it. And this is 2012's Indigo. This is a tile laying game, but not like any of his, not like Babylonia, not like Through the Desert, not like Samurai. It's just a game in which you are laying tiles that show paths like Sorrow to a shared board, a shared hex grid. uh, And you're trying to move gems that have varying values into your sort of scoring buckets. So these gems all exist out on the board. You lay these hexes, they show a path. It's going to move those gems along the path. And then you're going to go around the table, laying these hexes out, trying to move lucrative lucrative gems towards you. But there's this neat, neat thing where if you're playing a three or a four player version of this game, whenever you score, you score for yourself and the person to your left or right based on the goal that it goes into. So that creates these interesting table dynamics where you know that you have to be, you always want to be scoring for yourself, but you don't always want to be scoring in the same side. So it creates good tension on the board where people have to spread out and diversify. I don't know that I'd ever want to play this at two. I think it loses some of its charm without those shared scoring incentives. This isn't a, it's not one I've sought out. I have checked on eBay. It's a little pricey being out of print uh, for what it is for me, Uh, but it's fun. I think this is a kind of game you could play with almost anyone. It's really abstract. You talked about Municipium sort of being based in some sort of thematic intrigue. Tigris Euphrates is also that way. For me, Lost Cities feels thematic. Indigo is just like purely abstract. You're just trying to get gems in your buckets, Uh, but it's cool. It also, it kind of forces you to diversify because of that tension around, I can't always go to the same side. So if I'm directing too much towards the same goal, I'm probably going to push things towards my opponent to my left or my right, whichever side I'm pushing more towards, because they're probably doing things to help themselves elsewhere. Have you played this one, Jared? Yes, I think Indigo is pretty great for the reasons you mentioned. And it's also, it's very accessible. I played this one with my son when he was about six or seven. Nice. And, and he picked it up and did just fine. I, I agree that it's it's best with three or four when you have those shared areas. Because in some ways, you're kind of collaborating. You're like, all right, yeah. we'll just we'll just get it. Get it to this side, and then <laughs> well, don't don't worry about it. Just getting it to the side, and then at the very end, we'll we'll see which turn it takes. And it is also it's really attractive. Like it's one of those games where once once it's done, and you look at the complete board, it it looks really pretty. Because I don't know what what all math is involved to make sure that everything connects to everything, but it ends up a really appealing board state at the end. Yeah, and with those agreed. Glass Moncala beads that are just fun to play with and swoop around on the board. The art itself is, so this is a 2012 game and just the, the colors are all nicely saturated in a way. It feels lively. I, I don't know. It probably play it plays an under, it's like a 20 minute game, mm-hmm. right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Yes. So it's speedy. It's fun. It's great at three. It's, it's basically a filler game with a full board in, in a lot of ways. I liked Indigo. If someone said to me, I'll sell you Indigo for $20, I would say, absolutely do you have two copies i'll buy them yeah. both you know like no i wouldn't think about it twice i just don't really want to pay 50 bucks plus shipping for it understood i i agree it's not quite in that category but it's it's also one of the few kind of relaxing games right like yeah you're still engaged but this would be a really nice one to just you know have a cup of tea and a nice little chat while you're it's almost meditatively moving these pieces around so totally. it, can, it can get cutthroat but <laughs> 
it depends on how you go into it. Yep. I would say this is another one that if you're if you're listening to this episode and you sort of say, oh, my family loves Suro, but we want something that feels slightly more strategic, this is maybe a game you could you could look to, that it's going to give you a lot of that same feel with the path building, but give you just a slight bit more agency in sort of how things play out. Um, and interesting table dynamics with how things play out both ways. But yeah, so that's 2012's Indigo, our bonus hidden gem mm-hmm. uh, that I threw on the list at the last minute. And Jared, before we get into closing thoughts, I want to ask you something. Hit Reiner Knizia's Nintendo DS game, his puzzle game. Is that in your collection? No, not familiar. Oh, okay. Wait, so you've never heard of this? No. Okay, so in the mid-2000s, Reiner Knizia actually... So there was Brain Age, this Nintendo DS game that was all about doing these puzzles that would help your brain, mm-hmm. etc. So Knizia actually designed this Nintendo DS game. It's I don't know how many video games he's designed, but it's it's a video game with his title credit to it, his design credit, that exists in the world. So I was just curious if that was one of the 127 that made it into your collection. If you just kept it pure tabletop to this date. Are you already looking it up on eBay? No, I don't. I don't <laughs> think I have a DS anymore. But yeah, you do. I I have one sitting around, so maybe I'll the next time we get the pleasure of seeing each other, I'll look into yeah. snagging this just so I can show you uh, a copy of it. But yeah, I did circling back to Indigo. I will say yeah. that there is a smaller board and box available on the Japanese edition. So it's about Ooh. so it's about thirty dollars <laughs> if you want to get on Amazon.jp. Yeah, the my I have the German edition, which is a big one of those big rectangle boxes, but the Japanese one is a little nicer. I'll I'll send you the link so you can oh <laughs> no scope it out before it goes live. Please do. Oh gosh. Now before bed, I'm gonna just order this small box Japanese indigo. This is yeah. what you get. Jared comes out for an episode, you leave with a copy of a Kinitsia game. That's yep. how these things go. Well, do you have any closing thoughts on sort of hidden gems? People who are interested in Kinitsia, why why should they go further? Why move beyond the Raws and the the Tiger Sunny Freddies of the world? I don't know about should, but if they if they want to, there is a a lot out there that's available for them. And you can see like common themes going through his aura, but it's a truly staggering amount of variety and depths. And even when he iterates on the same concepts, like if you find pleasure in seeing him work his way through in real time all these different games, there's there is so many fun things out there. And since he is a, a global brand, like some of them were only released in various markets. And sure. so there could be worth seeking out. So for my kind of closing note, so this isn't a hidden gem because this is like cutting edge, not even released yet, but I'm I'm public service announcement. The next great Reiner Knizia auction card game is called Rife Fuhr di Insel. And it's about monkeys collecting bananas on their island. And it is amazing. So right now it's only available in Germany. But if you like games like High Society, if you like those small, punchy little auction card games, this one is terrific and worth seeking out. So if you are in the area, I'd be happy to (laughs) show it to everybody. I'm planning on bringing it to game night tomorrow and showing it to those guys. And I'm going to be spreading the word of Rife Fjordiensiel far and wide. Oh my gosh, the cover of this game, Jared, amazing. <laughs> it just has this grinning monkey clutching a banana. Yes. It, yeah, yeah, that's and great. And so I picked this one up while I was at Essen, and this is just another testament to his over-the-top prolific nature. I had no idea this was coming out. I had yeah. no idea it was going to be there. I just, I literally stumbled upon it <laughs> and saw his name on this box, and then I bought it, and then I played it, and I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your love of Kinesia, opening the sort of learnings of your 125 plus collection of Kinesia games with us, uh, and giving us sort of this interesting tour of some of the games that maybe if Kinesia hadn't designed over 700 games more people would know about just because there's so much competition within his own catalog for people to sort of explore i super appreciate it and it's always fun getting to chat and yeah jake thanks for forgetting your mic so jared (laughs) and i can have a fun conversation yes yeah happy to be here i i can and will talk about kinesia (laughs) on ad nauseum so i appreciate this opportunity to spread my enthusiasm Totally. Well, for all of our pre-planners out there, uh, know that Jake and I will be covering Heat, uh, the new racing game soon. Another game that I know Jared is actually a big fan of. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of good tension in that game. Also, if you want to learn more about the show, check out decisionspacepodcast.com. You can support us uh, there by looking at our Patreon page. The show is completely listener-funded, uh, and we love and appreciate all support. Check us out on Instagram. Just search Decision Space, and you'll find us there. Uh, and also, thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. Jared, I want to give you the closing word. Anything to say to the Decision Space audience as we head into the into Decision Space itself? I just want to say, you know, thank you to the listeners and the community. Uh, the, the Discord has been a, a really wonderful place to spend time with people who have similar values, right? And just enjoy talking about games. And it's it's been such, you know, a pleasure. I, I met Jake and then eventually Brendan because I was a listener of the podcast and now we've become genuine friends. And feel that way about some of the other people on there as well so i highly encourage if if any of this sounds appealing at all it's a really lovely group of people and are very welcoming so thank you for the show and for everyone else totally and if you want to ask jared about the 122 other kenitsu games in his collection you can do that in the discord uh which you'll find a link to in our show notes below and until next time thank you so much for listening bye y'all thank you bye